At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back to the With the First Pick podcast. I am your host, Brian Perez. As always, this podcast is brought to you by the Fan Sided Podcast Network. And we are joined once again by the Draft Wires managing editor, Luke Easterling. We're going to talk about some, some of the uh, evolving narratives in the NFL draft landscape as we approach here the last, I guess it's 10, not even nine days now before the draft kicks off in Nashville, Tennessee. Luke, welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing over at the Draft Wire? We're doing great, man. It's uh, it's pedal to the metal time, so uh, we're we're cranking out a bunch of stuff. This is uh, this is really where um, it's 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 the money making time, baby. It's 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 this is the the whole machine is it goes year round and it's crazy and it's heavy, um, and then it all comes down to this one weekend, man. And we're we're just so close that you know now it's everything's all all going to be so entertaining from here on out because the rumors as crazy as they've been up to this point you know it's only going to get worse it's going to get crazy um and i'm team chaos baby i i love all the craziness that surrounds this and then all the anticipation as the uh the event grows, grows closer so these next this next week or two and speaking be a lot of, fun. of chaos and money making time it kind of brings us to our first little uh area i want to discuss with you and that's the number one pick overall and it's not necessarily another conversation about Kyler Murray specifically because it seems like he is ultimately the magnet for all draft conversation during this draft cycle. But on Twitter recently, Daniel Jeremiah put out a little breadcrumb that I think is is really important for draft fans to pay close attention to because these kind of tweets aren't by accident. A lot of times draft experts, draft analysts, the writers in the industry – We'll start backtracking or backpedaling off of maybe statements or, at, or, or that that they that they have expressed throughout maybe the last month, two months, three months that come across as predictions, and nobody wants to have egg on their face and have a prediction come completely backfire in their face. And one of the things Daniel Jeremiah tweeted on Monday was that his confidence level in Kyler Murray being the number one pick overall on April first was ninety percent. And on April 15th, that confidence level has dropped all the way down to 60%. I wrote about this today over at with the, or today's actually, we're recording on Monday night. You'll hear this on Tuesday or later this week. Um, but I wrote about this on Monday at withthefirstpick.com. Make sure everybody you're bookmarking that website for all your draft content. I discussed that this is something that, that is worth our attention, Luke. This is something that we have to look into here because 60% is a notch above, just a tick above flip a coin if Kyler Murray's going to be the number one pick. What do you make of this Daniel Jeremiah sentiment? Do you think it's just his own personal scouting evaluation, maybe starting to bring Nick Boza back up to that number one valuation and him starting to have that pre-draft over-analysis, paralysis by over-analysis type of situation? Or do you think maybe he's hearing some things from some of his contacts that is creating this need for him to put this out on Twitter to get ahead of the train a little bit here in case the Cardinals do an about face and go in a different direction and don't take Kyler Murray. 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels more like uh, more like something that he's hearing. That that's kind of the vibe I got from it. Um, it didn't seem like it was based necessarily in his evaluations, but um, I mean, think back to to just a year ago, man. I mean, two weeks from from the NFL draft, Baker Mayfield was nowhere, nowhere on the map as far as being the number one pick. And the odds, you know, Vegas backs that up. You know, you go back and look at the odds a couple weeks before that, and it was, you know, Sam Darnold, it was Josh Allen, uh, and Baker Mayfield was 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 a blip on the radar at that point. So, uh, you know, this time of year is was when, you know, things really start to come together and all the narratives and all the rumors start swirling into what we think will actually happen because the, the time to smoke screen uh, especially, you know, the number one overall pick, you don't have to smoke screen anybody, you know, unless you're really trying to entice somebody to trade up, you have the number one pick, you don't have to fool anybody. So uh, I think what, you know, what I gathered from that tweet, and again, this is just my own conjecture, it's not inside information or anything like the, the vibe I got from that tweet is that, you know, this whole time, all this Kyler Murray, you know, Arizona Cardinals stuff has maybe it's been just a huge bluff and a huge ruse. Uh, and maybe they've been trying to entice the team to move up to the number one pick because this is a roster and a team that needs a lot of other things. Um, so but don't you, but don't you think, don't maybe, you think Luke, if that was the goal, they would have said number one picks available. I mean, instead it seems like the, 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 the play here has been, let's throw Josh Rosen out, you know, kind of, kind of set him out free floating in the ocean of trade offers see if we get an offer that is enticing. And then maybe the Kyler Murray selection was dependent on if and only if they got an offer for Josh Rosen that they deemed acceptable. Therefore, they can then move forward with the Kyler Murray pick. To me, it, it just none of it seems to make sense because if Kyler Murray's your guy, he's your guy regardless of Josh Rosen's place on the roster. Even if you can't trade him, you just go into the season with two highly rated prospects at quarterback, and eventually you'd get a suitor for Josh Rosen. It just seems to me that if they wanted to trade the number one pick, they would just announce the trades available. We don't have to go out here and say that Kyler Murray is going to be our pick. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe if they made that bluff and the Raiders really wanted Kyler Murray, maybe it would make Oakland panic and make a trade to move up. But it just seems like if you're going to trade the number one pick, you probably have a better chance of moving it for a team that might want to move up for a Nick Boza, might want to move up for a Quinn and Williams. It seems like if you, if you just kind of pigeonhole yourself and say, we're taking Kyler Murray, well, then San Francisco is not going to maybe want to jump up one spot for Boza. You know, the Jets aren't going to make an offer to move up a couple spots if they want, let's say, Quinn and Williams. You're only really putting yourself in a trade market for teams that want Kyler Murray. So it almost seems like it almost feels like that they would be limiting their ability to move him at that point. You know, I get the feeling that it could be more Daniel Jeremiah hedging his bets here. That's why he went with the 60% mark. Like, I still think they're going to take him, but I'm going to leave a 40% wiggle room in case they don't. So I could say maybe at the end of the day, uh, I warned you guys. You think that has any, that, that that theory has any legs? I mean, I think anything's possible. You know, I, I think that this is the time of year where, you know, there are lots of guys who are trying to, you know, everybody wants to be right, of course, and everybody wants to leave room for the craziness that can happen. Um, but it, you know, it's definitely if if that's what he's doing here, it's definitely a smart play because it, you you he you want to have your cake and eat it too when you, when you make those kind of predictions. And again, everybody, you know, we have to ha- we have to talk about something, right? So why not talk about the quarterback? I, I do agree with you. I think that if 
if trying to if the Cardinals are genuinely trying to entice someone to trade up to number one to take Kyler Murray by feigning interest in Kyler Murray, that just doesn't make sense to me. Like what you know, you're telling teams that like we're gonna show a bunch of interest in this guy, so you will trade up and draft him instead. That just doesn't make sense to me. Just go ahead and take your guy. Nobody's gonna buy that. So um I think at the end of the day, I think Arizona really would love to move that pick. It's just a lot harder to get teams to move up to that spot for anything other than a quarterback. I, I just and look down the line. Look at the rest of the top ten. Who else would move up to number one for a quarterback? You know, we talked about, you know, the 49ers and the uh and the Jets who need defensive line and edge help. They've got Jimmy Garoppolo. They've got Sam Darnold. They have their quarterbacks. The Raiders, even with Derek Carr, you know, we've heard, you know, thoughts that maybe the Raiders want to move in a different direction, you know, with Gruden and Mayock coming in now. Maybe maybe they are a quarterback team if they want Kyler Murray. But after that, you've got the Buccaneers, who Bruce Arians has, you know, verbally committed publicly to Jameis Winston. you got the Giants. Does Kyler Murray really strike you as the kind of quarterback that a really old-school general manager like Dave Gettleman is going to trade up and kind of bet the farm on at number one overall? I, I just don't see that. Not with the other quarterbacks in this class that kind of fit more, I think, what he would want out of the position. Uh, and then you're getting to Jacksonville at seven, who just signed Nick Foles. You're getting to the Lions at eight with Matt Stafford, the Bills with Josh Allen. I mean, who who is going to make that move? I, I don't think anybody's going to go up and get Kyler Murray at number one. I, I think it's a really bad year to have the number one pick if your goal is to trade the number one pick because there is no quarterback in this class. I mean, Kyler Murray is the best quarterback in the draft, but he's not an Andrew Luck prospect. He's not right. a guy. If, you're, if your chip who, is a 5'10 quarterback, that's the best you got. I just don't. That's that's not a good thing. And on top of that, in a traditional year, yeah, maybe the elite pass rusher would draw the desire from another team to move up for, for him. But this year, there's, you know, which pass rusher in this year's class is the elite guy? I mean, you could have the Jets or let's say the Raiders at four looking for edge rushers and they're just going to take whoever falls to them because at the end of the day, Josh Allen, Brian Burns, these, these guys might be better than Nick Bosa. Nick Bosa could slip to four because somebody thinks Brian Burns has a higher upside. I mean, you're almost going to just let the board take care of itself before your pick and not necessarily give away a future asset for a player, uh, you know, a pass rushing prospect in this class when there's so many of them that the odds of getting it wrong by trading up are so much higher than just letting the guy slip to you, the guy that, you know, is, is such a closely, you know, clustered group of pass rushers that just let the board do the work for you instead of mortgaging the future for that. So it's a bad year to have the number one pick because there's no clear cut elite quarterback prospect that a team would necessarily mortgage the future for. And there's a bunch of really good pass rushers that teams would be happy to settle with in case, you know, at the third, fourth, fifth, sixth pick, they're not able to move up for the maybe the quote unquote top guy, but the second, third and fourth guys in this year's class would probably qualify as a number one guy in recent drafts that have just passed. So it's just a bad year for Arizona to end up with that number one pick if they're truly trying to trade out, which is why I really don't think they are. And at the end of the day, I, I think it's going to be Kyler Murray, as we've talked about in recent episodes. We're just going to see where this all shakes out. But one of the things that also got released this week is Gil Brandt's top 150. And I, and I think this, this is always a fun list to, to review every year because Gil Brandt is a Hall of Fame NFL scout, essentially. He's inducted into – this is the – he was in, he's going to be inducted in 2019, I believe. He just right, got voted right. in. He's the godfather, and, man. 
he's the godfather, right? He's, he's the, he's the original. And, you know, while he may not necessarily be an analytics guy, he's not necessarily, you know, a hipster draft guy, like we see now on Twitter, he is a football's, a football guy's scout. And when he puts together his list of, of the top 150 players, you have to take notice of it because Gilbrandt's the guy who does the invitations for who's going to come to the draft and sit in that green room. He knows who the top 25 to 30 players in this class are based on not only his own scouting, but his contacts throughout the league, which is general managers. We're not talking about, you know, East Coast, Northeast region scouts or Southeast region scouts that he's talking to. He's talking to general managers, the actual he's, decision He's got everybody's number. Get, <laughs> he's got everybody's phone number and he's actually dialing them up because I, I doubt he's text messaging them. But then again, he has a pretty strong Twitter game, so it, it wouldn't surprise me if, he, if he's actually texting. But he knows how, what the landscape of the draft is is evolving into for the actual picks that are going to happen. So when he puts out his top 150, which he did this week, we got to take a look at it. And the first thing that jumps out at me is when you speak about quarterbacks, Daniel Jones, who has, who has received a bunch of criticism on Twitter. You know, I know Steve Palazzolo put together a piece on pro football focus this week that basically rates Daniel Jones as a third round quarterback on Gilbrandt's top 150. Daniel Jones is the number 17 player overall and the number two quarterback in the class. So what do you make of that, Luke? Do you think that's a legitimate assessment of where he's at, or is this just a Gilbrandt guy? No, I think it's a legit assessment of, of where the league will have that guy. And, and listen, if, if you do this this kind of work for any stretch of time, whether it's in the league or whether it's in the media, which are two you know very different things, obviously, you know you understand that every year there are going to be those guys, and it happens, I think, particularly a quarterback more so than anything, um, where you are going to say, you know, I, I know how I have this guy evaluated, but I also know the league well enough to know that they are going to value that player either way more than I do or way less than I do. And for me, uh, and for a lot of other people, it seems, at least in the media, uh, Daniel Jones is that guy that year. You know, I, I have a second round grade on him. I, I think he does have some intriguing tools uh, that could develop at the next level. But if we're talking about spending, a, you know, a top 15 pick on a quarterback, I just don't, you know. I have Will Greer from West Virginia ahead of him on my on my board. But, so but I, Luke, I, why, why why is there that disconnect? Like you talk about doing this long enough, you know, you've been in the game for a while. I've been in the game for a while, and you know, you you watch a player like Daniel Jones. I I'm actually pretty high on Jones. I think he does have, and we've talked about this in in uh, the first episode that we had that you joined here, the With the First Pick podcast. I, I'm pretty high on Daniel Jones. I, I know he has a, a limited ceiling, but I also think he has a very high floor. But, to, you know, ignoring necessarily his his scouting assessment, specifically, you know, what my opinion is or your opinion is of him, what, what is the reason for this disconnect? I mean, why does it seem like sometimes it's the NFL versus draft media? for certain players, maybe specifically quarterbacks. What is it that, in, in your opinion at least, if you could take your best guess, why, if, if we're trying so hard to figure out what makes a player, you know, project, what, what, what is it about a player that projects success in the NFL? We're trying to come up with a scouting report that's as accurate as possible that would essentially, you know, uh, mirror what an NFL team would think. Everybody wants to kind of be that 33rd, uh, scouting department and put your work out there and gain the respect of your readers and, and have a thought process and opinion that is similar to what an NFL front office would do. Yet there is always this disconnect with a player or two, especially a quarterback where the draft media 
and the NFL, there's this gap that can't be bridged. What, what do you think that is? Do you think it's a little bit of draft media being stubborn, not wanting to, you know, trying to be kind of contrarian here, not wanting to necessarily just see a quarterback that might be above average and grade him accordingly as a first round pick. I I don't understand. You know, it's one of these riddles that I can't seem to solve. Maybe you can help me solve it. Why does draft media seem to conflict with quote unquote, the real NFL scouting department so often on players like Daniel Jones? Well, I think, you know, first off, I think, and you mentioned kind of a a bunch of different perspectives that draft media, I mean, that's, that's a wide brush. So I think that the answer is yes to probably all of those for, for some people, there are probably people out there who just want to be a contrarian. There are people out there who just want to stir the pot a little bit. There are people out there who, you know, will have somewhat of an impossible grading scale. There will be, be, be people that think that you have to have 32 first round grades because there are 32 first round picks every year and, and there's no other way to do it. So, you know, everybody has their different process and their different reasons. But I think the the biggest thing that I could probably point to as to what creates that, you know, either disconnect, whether it's real or just perceived, is that when, when you're in the media, when you're doing this in this like macro way, when you're not involved with a specific team, when you don't have one set of filters when in terms of scheme in terms of team philosophy in terms of ownership in terms of you know all those different variables that for 32 different franchises could be all over the map um it's it's just such a i i would think i've never worked in the league at all but i i feel like from the outside looking in it would just be such a different approach than what i do which is try to look at each prospect and the class as a whole in a vacuum, basically, and look at their entire skill set, what they are capable of, what they, you know, what they struggle with. It's less about, I am not trying to fit draft prospects in every class into one specific, um, you know, scheme and team philosophy uh, and environment. I'm trying, it's more qualitative, you know, it's more trying to put a, a, a catch-all grade on these guys and that's just not how any team works that's not how they do things they can't you know they they can't look at the entire class that way the way we can with a a bit more of a big picture they want to know which of these players fit the way I want a football team to play this particular team in this particular season you know what what fits us best and there might be players that you know in a vacuum on a grand scale might get a better grade if you're just looking at them across the board, if all 32 teams, if you wanted a base grade, but because of the scheme you run and the way your depth chart looks and what you want from your, you know, position at where, you know, wherever that player plays, you know, that might break the tie or elevate other guys above, you know, above others. So I think that's probably the biggest reason is that, be, you know, the, the way the teams stack their boards, the way the teams evaluate these guys, particularly, uh, in regards to their own team and what happens in their building is just so far you know removed it's so f- different than what the media's approach to it is and I'll take it one step further I, I think and, and this is with all due respect to draft media which you and I are are proud members of uh, I think there is a there has to be an admission with draft within draft media that we really aren't armed with enough information to accurately evaluate and scout quarterback prospects the way the NFL does. 
And I think if we were able to have the same access to information that the NFL has, that their scouts on the road gather, that their front office guys gather through player visits and interviews and combine interviews and whatnot, if we were able to have the same level of access to these players and that information, I think you'd see quarterback boards look very, very differently in draft media, and they would probably come a lot closer to what we see in the actual NFL war rooms. Like Because the quarterback position isn't just about the physical traits, the athletic ability. It's also about you know what's going on above the shoulders, the intangibles that a quarterback brings to the table from leadership ability to football IQ to things that really, I mean, you'll see some draft media guys, you know, make assessments about a player's football IQ based on maybe five or six games that they watched throughout the last most recent season. Maybe some analysts will go into, um, you know, a season before, like for example, in this year, they'll, they'll dip into the 2017 film. Um, but you don't have the chance, the same opportunity as these scouts and NFL front offices have to get inside the head of a player. We don't have the Wonderlick scores. And I know a lot of draft analysts and media guys will say, oh, the Wonderlick is a joke, but that still had that still carries some weight in NFL front offices. And, you know, a guy like Daniel Jones, if he's interviewing well, if he is impressing coaches and 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 general managers on the whiteboard, if he's getting rave reviews from his teammates and coaches from Duke, if he is checking all those boxes that we don't necessarily have the ability to check on our personal scouting reports from just watching film or watching a player move at the NFL combine or getting snippets of interviews or just kind of listening to the rumors through the NFL draft grapevine about what a player's personality is like. We were not able to formulate that complete scouting report really on any player, but at quarterback, the position requires so much more than just what you see on film that I think that's what creates this gap between the actual NFL and draft media. You can watch a running back and a running back is so much more based on physical ability. And you can almost even get inside a running back's head too, based on the decisions they make with the ball in their hand behind the line of scrimmage that the feel, the natural feel for the offensive line, how the offensive line is moving in concert with the defensive line. You could make a better assessment in my opinion of a running back's ability to grasp what's going on around him. You could argue that you can pull that same information from a quarterback, definitely based on his progressions or the reads he's making against certain defenses, but you don't know the play that was called. You don't know what the the coach's instructions are to that player during the week of practice. You don't know what his primary read is supposed to be on a particular play. Some guys have the ability to pick that out from film, maybe former players, former quarterbacks. There's some of those guys that can maybe have a little bit of a deeper dive than the average draft analyst, but there's so much more that goes into evaluating a quarterback that I think naturally that creates this divide where you have one outfit as respected as pro football focus that would say Daniel Jones is a third round pick and a guy like Gil Brandt who not only did it, you know, guys like Roger Staubach are his, his fines, but also the people that he speaks with in the league to rate Daniel Jones as a top 20 player the number two quarterback ahead of Haskins, ahead of Drew Locke, ahead of these guys that are projected to be first round picks. You know, I I just think the disconnect is the lack of access to the player. And, you know, we kind of dig in a little more to Gilbrandt's list here. Another guy that I found interesting on his top 150 is Jonah Williams, who I'm a huge fan of. I think he's, he can play tackle in the NFL. I think he is a top 15 player in this class, but Gilbrandt has him ranked number nine, which I don't think that's crazy, but he, he, 
indicates on his ranking that he's a guard. And traditionally, guards don't carry top 10 value. But he has him at the number as the number nine player in the class as a guard. What do you make of that, Luke? Do you, do you think that's fair to say that Jonah Williams could be a top 10 pick, even labeled as a guard? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think, you know, I'm with you. I think he can be a tackle. I, I wouldn't necessarily move him unless I was really confident in my tackles and needed a, a guard. But frankly, I, I just think he's a, a top 15 player r- regardless. I think that uh, wherever you line him up, I, he's just such a quality offensive lineman. And, and really what what separated him, and this kind of goes into what you were just talking about in terms of access to the player and how that can change your evaluation. You know, I, I'm a big fan of Jawan Taylor from Florida as well. Um, I think athletically he, he has some, some tools in his, his box that, that Jonah Williams might not have. Um, but honestly, what really ended up splitting the tie for me in my evaluation is uh, he did a, an, an interview with us. He did a one-on-one interview with uh, with uh, Justin Mello, one of our writers at DraftWire, and he spoke about how he prepares for opposing pass rushers. And, and it, man, if you haven't read that interview, go back and look at the answer he gave us. It's a novel. Just the one answer to this one question about how he he, you know, goes after different rushers in different ways. He has an Excel spreadsheet where he tracks when he's watching film of the, of the edge rushers, he's about to face in the coming week, how many times they use a certain move, their success rates with those moves, how often, you know, it, it, he goes into extreme detail about how meticulously he prepared for those pass rushers as a student athlete, as a kid who still had to go to class. So, you know, if you're talking about projecting that guy to the next level where it's going to be his full-time job to take that kind of preparation, that kind of dedication to his craft to the next level, that's really what set him apart for me and made me believe that he's going to be a long, long uh, career starter in this league, regardless of where you line him up. But that's that's why I think he'll be effective still at tackle. Um, we've seen tackles that don't have the long arms, uh, you know, be successful, uh, and I think he will be one of those guys. But it has so much to do with how how dedicated he is to to his technique uh, and and to preparing for his opponents. Do you think he's worth a top ten pick as a guard? I mean, last year we saw Quentin Nelson. I think he was the number five pick to the Colts or thereabouts, and and he changed the entire dynamic of that offense and literally, basically rebuilt the offensive line just with his selection. But Nelson, to me, was a generational type prospect at guard, which pushed him into that top five. You know, we we've seen some other examples of guards. Drafted high, uh, the the draft class with uh, Chance Warmack and and uh, the other Jonathan one slipping Cooper. my Jonathan Cooper. Yeah, I loved Jonathan Cooper as a prospect. Absolutely loved him, but also learned a lesson that guards really. I don't know. I think that was two guards that went in the top ten that year, right. and neither one of them panned out. Cooper had injury issues, and and Warmack obviously didn't necessarily pan out to where he was uh, ultimately uh, projected to be. Do you think it's a slippery slope to put a guard at number nine on your big board if they're not a Quentin Nelson-like talent? Right, and, and I think that would be where I where I differ from Gill on his evaluation. I, I would put I would say yes, he's worth a top ten pick because I think he's he can be a quality tackle at the next level. If I thought that he was incapable of doing that, and I would have to move him inside to guard because of some sort of limitations that I thought he had that would change that conversation. But um, I agree with you on Quentin Nelson. He was 
basically 1B to Saquon Barkley's 1A on my board last year, the number two player there. And I do think he's just a generational talent and a very different player stylistically uh, from from Jonah Williams. Just an absolute mauler, very athletic guy, Quentin Nelson was, but just insanely physical. Uh, Those guys just don't come around very often. I don't think Jonah Williams is is that rare of a prospect in terms of his physical abilities uh, to put him on that same level. But again, I, I think he can play right tackle, left tackle. If you need to move him to guard, that's fine. But he's a top 10 guy. In this class, I'd be comfortable taking him in the top 10 if I needed an offensive tackle because I think he can stay on the outside. Yeah, and I think when it's all said and done, I think we're going to see Williams as the first offensive lineman off the board, which would go against the grain of the draft narrative as it's been evolving here with Juwan Taylor as the borderline consensus number one offensive tackle in the class. And Jonah Williams even slipping into that tier with guys like Dalton Reisner and and Andre Dillard. I think I think we're going to still see him as the number one offensive lineman ultimately come off the board. And I think number nine overall could actually end up being where he goes, the Buffalo Bills at number nine. I think that, that could be where we start to see the run on offensive linemen. Uh, moving to another position group here in, on Gilbrandt's list, uh, wide receiver. And, and, and the one guy that jumps out at me, there's actually, well, actually two guys that jump out at me, but one for the, uh, how highly he's rated and another for how low he's rated. And, and in, on the positive side of the spectrum is Paris Campbell from Ohio State, who's ranked 29th overall on Gilbrandt's board, the number 29 player in the class. I believe it's his number two receiver behind DK Metcalf. And on the opposite end is Hakeem Butler, who for the Iowa State, you know, physical freak, who's ranked ninth at wide receiver, number 60 overall, which is still high praise. I mean, that's a, that's a middle mid second round pick, essentially mid to late second rounder, but ninth overall at wide receiver. I, I get the appeal with Paris Campbell. I think Paris Campbell is flying under the radar a little bit here. I think NFL teams love speed and Paris Campbell is arguably the most explosive receiver in this class from a pure speed standpoint and athletic ability standpoint. But we, we haven't heard anyone in draft media, I mean, I, I I apologize if anyone's out there who has been banging the drum for Paris Campbell as a top 30 player. But, you know, yes, he, I've seen some guys say he could sneak into the first round. He could be one of those three or four receivers that are taken in the first round. But few, if anybody, has him ranked as the second best receiver in the class, whereas Hakeem Butler has been jockeying with DK Metcalf as of late to potentially be the number one receiver in the class. Where, where do you yeah, think the disconnect is there on, kind of on Gil Brandt's is that Why Campbell I've, over I've Butler? Been one of Campbell's last supporters, even prior to the combine, heading into the combine, I was kind of banging the drum for him because I knew he's going to fly. You knew he's going to be fast. Um, but I, re- I just, I love his his leadership. I like he's a very vocal, fiery leader. Uh, you know, a guy that I think that will rally the locker room and be an immediate presence there. I, I really like that part of his game as well. But you know, his combine was not surprising whatsoever, and I thought that you know, putting him in maybe the late second, uh, you know, early third round range at, 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 as my number 10 receiver. I thought that was kind of high praise. Uh, but, you know, speed kills in the NFL when you run, you know, almost 4-3 flat uh, and have some of the big plays on his resume that he has, it, you know, those guys are just going to come off the board really early. So, um, you know, he, he, like I said, he's at number 10 on the receiver list for me. Um, you know, if you're looking for the holes in his game, he's just a guy that a lot of his success comes on really short stuff, you know, screens and, and hitches trying to get the ball in his hands, uh, because he's so explosive because he can make big plays. Um, you know, but you, you want to see a more complete game, more complete, you know, routes and, and that sort of thing. Um, but he's just a playmaker with the ball in his hand. So I get, you know, he's one of those guys that if he went in the first round, you just can't be surprised because when you run 4-3-1 at the combine, that's what happens. We saw John Ross become a top 10 pick 
regardless of his, you know, lack of size, his injury history, because he blew up the track. So um, it wouldn't surprise me. Again, I, I, I thought I was one of the, the people out there who's higher on, on Paris than most, but uh, I guess Gil wanted to, to take that trophy, and that's fine. So um, Hakeem Butler, no, no, and Hakeem, Hakeem Butler's kind of on the other side of that spectrum. He's he's at number two for me. I, I see a guy <laughs> with, thing. you know, the complete ahead, skill Luke, set, the size, the physicality, the speed. The route running ability, the the red zone ability to go up and get those 50-50 balls. I, I he's one of two receivers I have him and DK Metcalf. I got first round grades this year, um, and I just I can't. I, there's no way I'd be able to find eight receivers I'd rather have in this draft than that guy. And it's funny because your rankings are almost the complete opposite of Gil, right? Gil has Paris at two, Hakeem at nine. You have Paris at 10, Hakeem at two. So it just goes to show that, and at wide receiver, I do think you can see that kind of differentiation between uh, from board to board. You can see teams falling in love with Paris Campbell because, you know, what you mentioned with Campbell in terms of how a lot of his production came from short routes and whatnot. I'm I'm of the opinion that you really can't fault, right. and I'm not saying you're faulting agree. him for this, but generally speaking, you can't fault a prospect for doing something or for not doing something he wasn't asked to do. And in Ohio State's offense, he, you know, Ohio State was an offense that wanted Paris Campbell to get the ball in his hands as quickly as possible and make a play after the catch. It doesn't mean he can't make plays down the field. It's like when Marcus Mariota was coming out. Maybe Marcus Mariota isn't a great comp because he hasn't had a fantastic NFL career yet. But his, some of the questions about his game were based solely on things that we didn't see on tape because, well, he wasn't asked to do them. But he's obviously proved in the NFL he's an all-around good quarterback. If he could stay healthy, he might be able to move into a that tier of being a very good starting quarterback. Uh, so you know, I, I would say to, to anyone out there listening, when you're putting together a scouting report on a prospect, don't knock a player because – you didn't see them do certain things on tape that you'd like to see from a more complete player, especially if they didn't do certain things because they weren't asked to. If you saw Paris Campbell trying to make plays down the field and consistently fail, well, that's a different story. And and that's not necessarily what we saw on film from him this year. We saw, like you said, a lot of the short stuff that he turned into long stuff. And that's a good thing. I mean, that's not a bad thing. You look at guys in the NFL who can make plays happen with the ball in their hands. Those are valuable commodities. And, when he gets into the league, he's going to be making plays down the field. I mean, it's, it, there's no doubt in my mind that he's going to be a three-level receiver in the NFL. It's just a matter of getting in a system that showcases that more well-rounded part of his game. But it's interesting because you see that 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 uh, you know the the variation here from Daniel Jones to guys like Paris Campbell, Jonah Williams, and, and Gil Brandt's board is very different from what we have been seeing in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, uh, the, the last couple of weeks in terms of the draft narrative crystallizing um, around some of these players. So speaking of the draft narrative over the last couple of weeks, Luke, we'll end with this. Dangerous combination. Man. I, I went on like, a little bit of a Twitter rant late night after watching some film. It was like one o'clock in the morning last week and, you know, bleary eyed and just frustrated. I started d- dangerous. You know, it's like the Herm Edwards sound drop that ESPN puts out there says, you know, don't hit send. Well, I, I was hit and send. Um, you know, what frustrates me more than anything else this time of year, and really from pretty much the combine all the way through the minute the first pick is announced, is these the hashtag sources on draft Twitter. 
where you have analysts maybe trying to make a name for themselves or trying to validate their opinion by suggesting that sources or connections are saying player X is meeting with player uh, team Y and that shows that the interest is there or, or, or certain one draft analyst in particular who I won't name here making representations that certain teams that he, he knows where certain teams have players on their draft board. I mean, to me, it's just ludicrous. Yet there's a lot of retweets. There's a lot of favorites. There's a lot of follows. I mean, what do you make of the draft analyst on Twitter who is you know, and, uh, representing and listen, this is, this out is there for the, the masses that, that they have this inside in my, knowledge of where certain players are ranked you know, on teams' doing this Because I've been doing this long enough to, you know, where I was long before Twitter. Um, but, you know, when, when this whole machine started to pick up speed, you know, I, I, I asked myself back then, you know, what kind of analyst do I want to be here? You know, am I going to be that sources guy, that breaking news guy? Do I want to try to make those contacts with, with agents, which let's be honest, is where a lot of this information comes to the media and gets out in the media, you know, is being pushed by the agents trying to either find out information or to, you know, inflate a guy's value, whatever, you know, it may be. You know, I, I just decided, you know, I, I, I tried to mess around with it and I made some connections and, and I just didn't like it. I didn't, I didn't like being that guy, I guess, you know, and, and again, if, if that's the way you want to go about it and you do have a bunch of connections and, and want to maximize those, you know, do, do your thing. You know, it's just for me personally, that was just not my thing. I, I, I found out very quickly that's just not the, the way I wanted to go about it. I love the game of football. I love writing as a craft. So, I you know, I wanted to just continue to write about football. I'm passionate about the draft. And, and that's where, you know, kind of my, my passion lies in that. So, you know, when I see this huge machine that is draft Twitter coming up with all these different, you know, ways to try to, you know, suggest certain narratives or, or make it known that they have information that's proprietary. And, and again, man, it, just look back at the track record of so many different people in this industry who, you know, make it seem so concrete that they have a certain piece of information that's going to be rock solid on draft day. And it just completely ends up being non-existent and because there's so much that happens on draft weekend and we're so excited about it nobody goes it's it's like a, a coach guaranteeing a playoff win and then you lose nobody remembers that they only remember when you win so you know guaranteeing it isn't isn't a big risk because you're obviously you're trying to move your you know motivate your team you're trying to get them riled up but if you lose you lose no you know people remember who wins so you know if, if you're right everybody acts like it's this big huge thing and it's amazing but if you're wrong you know, it doesn't take much because there's so much else going on in that weekend for people to just kind of forget about it. So I think that's why it happens. Hey, you know, Luke, I, I want to I jump in here and give you a, a quick, you know, uh, anecdotal story here. Um, I won't name names as, you know, I, I just you know, respect the uh, the process for lack of a better term. But I remember uh, two years ago during the draft when the Bears traded up to select Mitchell Trubisky. And the night before the draft, I received a direct message on Twitter from a very outspoken um, draft analyst on Twitter who, after I had sent several tweets out about the Bears and how I thought it was a quarterback year for them, just based on my educated guesses, no inside sources or anything. And I never, ever use that as a reference because I don't tap into sources to form my opinion or to share opinions on Twitter. But 
I had received a direct message from someone who everybody listening to this podcast would know who he is. And he told me that the Chicago Bears had met and they formulated their final draft board and there was 0% chance, zero, that they were going with a quarterback in the first round, that it was not happening, that they would not address quarterback. If at all, it wouldn't happen until later in the draft. That was the night before the draft. And on draft day, we all know what happened. Not only did the Bears draft Mitchell Trubisky, but they traded up for him to get him. Now, if this was a publicly sent tweet, this individual's credibility would be completely destroyed and um, would be laughed at, essentially. And so these kinds of representations that are made by draft analysts with this very uh, you know, affirmative, this is what's happening, my contacts, my sources, what have you. Sometimes these draft analysts might have a contact inside the building and they're being used as a puppet in the game, a chess piece to shift the narrative away from the draft, the team's actual intentions. And it's almost embarrassing that a draft analyst would fall for it for lack of a better term, and use the information to maybe promote their own personal agenda versus taking a step back, assessing why is this front office person telling me information that eventually I would share? What, What makes me so important and so valuable to have an NFL team trust me with arguably the most important offseason decision that millions of dollars are invested into getting the decision right. Scouts are sworn to secrecy. Sometimes GMs actually put out fake rumors to try to kind of flush out the rats in the building. Why would a draft analyst suddenly be trusted with this type of multi-million dollar secret? It just doesn't happen. It never happens and it never will happen. If you remember that same draft when the Chicago Bears traded that, up for Mitchell that's Trubisky, John, that's what John Adam Schefter it was himself. tweeted that it was for Solomon Thomas, the general manager of the 49ers. Seconds before that. the Bears picked Mitch Trubisky, seconds before they picked him. <laughs> right. So, who was part yeah, of the here trade? We, here he, we he made the There's trade. guys on draft Twitter that are saying they yeah, know more I, or know, have a stronger it, connection as to what's going you know, on than it's, John Lynch it's so, it's, or Adam Schefter. Here's what it comes down it's to. It's laughable to joke. It, it's pointless. It's pointless, <laughs> man. It, it, there's no, I don't know. It, I, I don't just believe it adds value to the process for, for anybody. I, I don't think, I think if you removed that, that entire narrative, that entire section of, of draft Twitter that, needs to put out these, you know, you know, I know this and I found this. If you took that all away, just deleted all the tweets, would there have any negative impact on the on the overall enjoyment and entertainment value for any fan when it comes to the NFL draft? Absolutely not. No, and, and it's a self-serving agenda. I've I've been to dozens of pro days in the New York, New Jersey area over the last ten years, dozens, and I have been at pro days where some of these media members are present, and some of these media members will tweet out alleged information that they gathered from scouts or sources of teams that were actually at these pro days, 
And I can tell you with my right, left hand on a Bible or right hand on the Bible, whatever hand goes on the Bible and the right hand up to God, that not a single scout at any pro day that I've ever attended in my entire life has ever had a conversation with any of the members of the media. They are huddled together. They're there to do a job. They avoid the media like the plague. And I know this for a fact because they do their job, they walk to their car, and they leave. And the same media members are all huddled together talking about what happened at the pro day and just talking shop. And at the end of the day, when you start seeing tweets come out from some of these people about information that they allegedly gathered, it's information they're sharing with each other. I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't come from the teams. It's ridiculous. And I just hope that, you know, this is not meant to bash draft Twitter or some of the analysts that are, you know, kind of playing this part of the game. It's just to give our listeners a little bit of insight and, you know, just, just buyer beware, right? You're assuming the risk of being duped when you believe some of these things that go out on Twitter. You are taking a chance that somebody who doesn't necessarily have a track record like an Adam Schefter who earned his stripes in the business by being a, a writer for the Denver Post and building connections over decades of hard work, you're, build, you're assuming the risk that some random draft analyst who maybe has written for the last five, six, seven years somehow has developed contacts within the league that are strong enough to where they can drop these nuggets of information that you could take to the bank. Uh, yeah, They're man. bad checks. Uh, head over to They're rubber checks. They're going to bounce all the way to the bank Twitter and out of the bank. So just, you know, buy our uh, beware right on that. But Luke, out, uh, uh, tell everybody out there listening what's going on at the draft teams, wire. What are you guys pumping kind of out? You know, what can fans down, expect over the next week uh, or so? You know, where the team is at, what their positions of need are, where the top targets, the top prospects they should be after. Uh, we're doing a different one of those for all 32 teams. Um, we've got uh, my final positional rankings are rolling out right now. I'm kind of happy halfway through getting those out. Uh, and then, you know, the next things will be, you know, another mock draft this week, probably four rounds with some trades. I like to shake them up and, and go kind of deeper into the into the rounds and also provide some trades to, to kind of mix things up. Um, I'll have my, my final overall big board with uh, 300 guys on it, uh, ranked from top to bottom. So, um, again, it's crunch time. We're going to be peppering all the readers out there with as much draft content as you can handle. We still have a bunch of interviews rolling out. We've had uh, interviews, one-on-one exclusive interviews with over 60 prospects in this draft from Rashawn Gary to Devin Bush, Josh Allen, Jonah Williams, who we talked about earlier, Hakeem Butler, who we talked about earlier. We've talked to all these guys. So much fantastic content. I have to hand it to my my writers. Got a fantastic staff of guys who work really, really hard and have put together some fantastic content. That's going to keep going on through uh, draft weekend. We're just going to be nonstop, man. So so head on over there. Talk to us on social media. We love talking about this stuff and, and continue to read the work. And I, I, I second that. DraftWire is, is, is arguably the top draft site out there right now. Uh, over at withthefirstpick.com, man, we're just trying to get out of your shadow a little bit, man. And over at With the First Pick, we're putting together mock drafts and, and, our, and putting out our opinion as well that we hope you guys are enjoying. You could follow us at uh, With the First Pick over on Twitter. You can follow me at Brian Perez NFL. That's Brian with a Y. Also, make sure you head over to our Facebook page, the With the First Pick pa- Facebook page. That audience and, and uh, uh, you know that interaction over there is, is growing by the day. Uh, it's, it's really been exciting to watch that grow. And I want to you know thank everybody out 
out there for the unbelievable growth that we've been experiencing it with the first pick since I took over the site on March 7th. It's it's literally every single day we're breaking a traffic record that we sent that we set the day before. So I really appreciate your support there. I appreciate your support here at this show as well. Make sure you head over to anywhere that you can find your podcast, subscribe to the show, give us a review, rate us, whatever it is that you do for podcasts these days, get our name out there and make sure you come on back. We're going to have another episode maybe this week, early part of next week. And then once the draft comes, we're going to be reviewing every pick that happened in the draft and shows that follow uh, with our grades and analysis from the first round all the way through the seventh. So make sure you come on back to the with the first pick podcast. And like I said, bookmark with the first pick.com and, and draft fans will be back. We're almost there. It's almost a 2019 NFL draft. Roger Goodell will be announcing with the first pick very soon. And we're excited to cover it all for you. Thanks again and come back soon. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.